I, a figure that I'm really proud of these days is that um, 17% of the Irish population were not born in Ireland. And uh, we've turned from a country 20 years ago that were exporting our best people to now importing the best people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, and it's an indication of how diversified, how multicultural Ireland has become over the last couple of years, you know. And a couple of things in terms of the transformation of the Irish wor- workforce since uh, when I started working in the 1980s is women are a key factor of the workforce. You know, pre-1980, mm-hmm. you know, uh, the, uh, women would retire on marriage and forced into retirement almost in the 1970s. And so we've changed that dynamic over the last 20 years. Women are uh, are an equal part of the workplace. We attract people from different backgrounds, different uh, ethnicities, different kind of sexual orientations. You know, Ireland is an inclusive and welcoming place. Mm-hmm. And this is an important part of how you attract talent is that you have to make Ireland a welcoming place. And that's something that we do. And it's something that we've universally uh, traded on. Uh, it started out, I think, uh, you know, uh, two, three, four decades ago, but by attracting attracting American multinationals. But that has really mm. diversified and we're bringing in multinationals and FDI from different sectors. Maybe some lessons there for Hong Kong. David, it's always good to talk to you. Thank you for coming in. Fantastic, Peter. Great to talk. That's David Costello, who is the Consul General of Ireland to Hong Kong and Macau. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Final look around the markets for this morning. The SX200 in Australia up about 0.4%. In Japan, the Nikkei 225 has risen one and a third percent. Cosby also up in South Korea, about three quarters of a percent. And going to be a similar story for the Hang Seng at the Open, looking for a gain of about 175 points. Thank you for listening this morning. Please join me again tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock. Coming up after the news is Back Chat with Janice Wong and Jenny Lamb. The weather forecast, cloudy, few rain patches. The maximum temperature is going to be around 23 degrees. A few rain patches as well in the next couple of days. And then the weather is going to improve next Monday and Tuesday. It's 22 degrees right now, 93% relative humidity. Time's 8.32. Here's Tom Warden with the half-hour news. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky has appealed to the United Nations Security Council to take action to stop Russian missiles targeting vital infrastructure that have once again plunged Ukrainian cities into darkness and cold as winter sets in. The mayor of Kiev, Vitaly Klitschko, said some districts of the capital were without power and water supplies had been cut throughout the city. Local agencies reported there had also been explosions in the south and southeast of the country, and air defense systems were targeting Russian missiles. Ukraine's Deputy Health Minister Alexei Yaramenko told the BBC the situation was still unfolding. Today, the whole country is under attack. We are already seeing that Kiev and other cities, uh, their electricity system damaged. But attacks is not over, so we will see the result in a couple of hours. A Taliban official in eastern Afghanistan says 12 people, including three women, have been publicly flogged after they were found guilty of adultery and theft. A spokesman in Logar province said the women were released after their punishment, while some of the men were sent to jail. The BBC's Anbarasan Itirajan has more. A crowd of about 5,000 people gathered to watch the floggings in a stadium in eastern Afghanistan. Those punished received between 21 and 39 lashes each. It comes days after the Taliban's supreme leader, Haipatullah Akhunsada, ordered judges to fully enforce aspects of the group's hardline version of Islamic law that includes public executions and stonings. 
The Supreme Court in Britain has ruled that the Scottish Parliament does not have the power to hold a second referendum on independence. The five-strong panel of judges said the Scottish government in Edinburgh could not organize another vote without the consent of the UK government in London, which it has so far refused to give. Scotland's First Minister Nicola Sturgeon said she was disappointed by the ruling, but she respected it. Without an agreement between the Scottish and UK governments for either a Section 30 order or a UK Act of Parliament to change its powers, the Scottish Parliament cannot legislate for the referendum that the people of Scotland have instructed it to deliver. That is a hard pill for any supporter of independence and surely indeed for any supporter of democracy to swallow. A British Paralympian has been chosen to become the first disabled person to be trained as an astronaut. John McFall has joined the Space Training Corps at the European Space Agency, where he'll work with designers and engineers to see if he can be the first disabled person to go into space. The Paralympic sprinter lost his leg in a motorbike accident when he was 19. Mr. McFall was one of 17 people, including five career astronauts, selected to join the ESA's class of 22. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Back Chat. I'm Janice Wong and your guest presenter is Jenny Lam. On today's program, we're talking about gaming addiction, particularly among young people. The Mainland's Gaming Industry Association has declared victory against gaming addiction, with a new study showing that three-quarters of under-18s now play video games for no more than three hours a week, in line with regulations brought in last September. Officials had previously likened the problem to spiritual opium. There are no such limits in Hong Kong. Here, some people spend upwards of 40 hours a week on the internet, according to a separate study by software company NordVPN. So how susceptible are Hong Kong teenagers to video game addiction? Has COVID made things worse? Is there enough attention being paid to this potential problem? After 9.15, we'll look at the homeless situation after the audit report revealed a significant jump in the number of registered street sleepers in Hong Kong. And at 9.25, we'll be joined by RTHK's sports correspondent, Adam Chung, with the latest on the World Cup. So let us know what you think. You can leave a message on our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio 3, email us at backchat at rthk.hk or give us a call on 233-88266. Now to kick off our discussion this morning, we have on the line Joe Tang, who is in charge of the Hong Kong Christian Services Online Addiction Counselling Centre, Anna Fenton, an addictions therapist and relationships therapist at OTNP, and Dr Amos Chung, a clinical psychologist. Good morning to you all and thanks for joining us on the programme. Um, now, Mr Tang, you run an online addiction counselling centre. How many calls uh, related to gaming addiction does the uh, centre usually get? Okay, uh, yes. Uh, you, you, you want to know how many cases, right? Yes. The surface requests? Yes. Yes. Um, our our programme has started since 2005. Uh, and I can tell you, uh, during these several years, we keep receiving around uh, 10 new more surface requests each month. Uh, 10 more new service requests each month. Um, it is quite steadily in these uh, several years. Um, and, and also, uh, during last year, uh, there is a slightly increase of, of survey requests due to the pandemic situation. Um, and we found that the, the age is around uh, seven years old up to uh, 20-something. 
So what kind of help are these addicts so-called looking for? Yeah, yeah. Usually the parents will call us asking for the service. And teenagers will <laughs> call us directly on the service. So what kind of help do you offer them? Sorry, I beg your pardon. How do you help them? Oh, okay, how do we help him? Um, you, because we, first of all, we have to know uh, how we uh, uh, think or how, according to our service, how we see or, or uh, take care of this issue. Um, because we find that it usually due to some unmet need in their daily life. So we have to help them uh, to, to assist the teenagers to build up their ability to uh, uh, fulfill their many in their daily life or the facing their challenge in, in school or in their friendships, etc. And also we help the family to rebuild a family function so that the family members of the parents can support the teenagers. All right. So, so Anna, Mr. Tang here is um, his counseling center receives around uh, ten calls related to gaming addiction per month. Uh, it's not really a big figure. Do you think it uh, suggests that the gaming addiction problem is uh, not as serious as we think, or are people just not aware they have an addiction problem and are not seeking help? I think uh, it's, I think it's far far worse than we yet acknowledge. You know, the biggest problem I see is we're talking about teenagers who have parents. Now, remember. If you're born um, at a certain age and stage like me, I did not grow up in the Internet era. So for me, it's a learned culture. If you learn a new culture after 35, it's very difficult for you to assimilate it. But these young kids, they grew up with the Internet. It's natural and normal. But so is it for many of their parents. So you're now having to deal with multi-generational addiction to gaming and Internet and online activity. And that's really difficult. Because I get parents coming in saying, fix my, my teenager. But I go, well, it starts with you. You know, you've got to have good boundaries about your internet use. How are you doing with that? Okay, so, so we have this um, study by NordVPN that says people in Hong Kong, some of them are spending 40 hours a week on the internet. Can you tell us, you know, other than time, what are some of the implications for, for these so-called addicts? Well, well, first of all, Jenny, the, the figures out of the U.S., which is not, you know, directly correlatable with Hong Kong. It's a different situation. But anyone who's doing more than 21 hours a week of particularly video gaming is considered uh, likely to be in an addictive situation. So, and, sorry, okay. and, and so, so other, other than the waste of time, uh, what are some of the adverse effects? Well, um, cost to social development cost to eye-to-eye um, -eye contact with friends and peers, which creates the ability to have empathy. You know, when we're having real social contact, we create mirror neurons in the brain. Now, these mirror neurons enable us to have empathy with other people and to be relational. Now, looking at a screen, which your brain sees as pixels, dots, right? This is not the same as face-to-face -face contact when one eye is looking at another and creating mirror neurons. And this is at a time of development of children when the prefrontal cortex is being developed, which goes on up until the 20s, when impulse control is being learned to be managed. Now, video games are highly stimulating, and they, they teach you to jump, you know, and be highly reactive. Now, that's not helping you to increase impulse control. So your ability to deal with frustrations, normal life frustrations, normal life stresses, can be seriously impaired as a result. 
Okay, Dr. Amos Chung, what are some of the worst cases that you have come across uh, in, in terms of gaming addiction? Uh, as far as it's concerned to uh, teenagers, uh, some of the worst examples would be uh, uh, playing truant, refusals of school. They would rather be, be staying at home playing or maybe uh, they, they lie to the parents that they went to school, but in fact they just stay at somewhere and continue playing their video games uh, or either maybe on the mobile phone. And it also affected their, their mood because a lot of times actually uh, some of the, the addictions is not because of out of enjoyment, but more is because as an avoidant coping of stresses, of anxieties, of depression. So they are not actually enjoying the process, but actually just trying to get away with the negative emotions that they are experiencing. And I also do agree that actually prolonged exposures uh, to, to gaming to this extreme extent actually has a negative effect in the overall development of a person. And on top of the impulse control, uh, it also affects one's persons in their emotional management, frustrations management, anger management, and also as well as in the training of attention and concentration. Right, Dr. Chung, do you think it's more difficult for, for um, video game addicts to recognize they have a problem? Because um, unlike uh, some other addictions, for example, drugs or alcohol, um, nothing physical is being consumed. Uh, yes, to a certain extent, uh, uh, they would feel that nothing has been consumed. But the diagnostic criteria of the, all these of addiction is not about whether something is consumed, say for example, uh, gambling, uh, it's not something that's consumed, but it's, there, there is a, a, a behavioral pattern where there is a, an extreme severity of impact that can result in the functioning of personal, family, social, educational, occupational areas. And most of the time, actually, these teenagers, they do agree that uh, there is a functional impact, significant one, to, over these areas. So actually, it's not that difficult for them to realize that there is an issue, but usually it's more difficult for them to get treated because during the process, uh, they do feel good or at least they feel better uh, uh, when they are exposed to gaming. So how do we know if we are uh, video game addicts or how do we know if our children are video game addicts? How much is too much? Uh, I think is that there's not one uh, uh, very uh, exact uh, figure in terms of how many hours equals to uh, 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 this uh, addictive gaming behavior. But actually, it reflected in, in multiple ways. Say, for example, uh, uh, there, there is a, a significant impact on, on the overall performance of what we are required to do. Uh, we are letting go responsibilities. Uh, we are putting video gaming or internet gaming as, a, as the top and the highest priority in our daily schedule. Uh, we, knowing that uh, such behaviors would bring eventual impact 
on various aspects. But as if we started to lose control, and we are being controlled by these impulses and urges, uh, either it's because of enjoyment or it's due to the fact that uh, we, we are using these as an escape for stressful situations. Okay, so Anna Fenton, you're an addictions and relationships therapist. Um, now, presumably, you, you mentioned earlier, a lot of the time is, is also talking to the parents about, look, how, what is your behavior on the internet? So weaning these, um, I, I imagine most of them are teenagers, weaning them off this, this addiction, presumably create a lot of tension in the family as well. Have you come across that? Oh, yes, not just tension. I mean, trying to drag a kid away from playing Grand Theft Auto, you know, it's like trying to get crack cocaine out of their hands. Now, this, this plays to a much bigger problem in society, is um, hands-off parenting. Parents now are just as guilty of unboundaried internet use as their kids. Now, children learn by behaving, by observing behavior, particularly what they see modeled at home. So if you see your dad uh, playing video games all night long, well, he's not in a position to tell you to stop doing it, is he? And it gets really extreme. Uh, you know, opposition and defiant behavior can be seen with children when parents try after years of lax parenting to suddenly get tough, now you're trying to get um, a stroppy teenage boy away from his video game. And remember, all his social validation and his self-esteem and his feel-good feelings are wrapped up in this game. And you, Dad, are trying to pull him away from that. Good luck with that. So yeah. parents are getting a rude wake-up call now. And all addictions are fundamentally about a malfunctioning relationship. You know, the cure for addiction... It's not really sobriety, it's connection. Because people go for addictions, go to addictions to look for a quick fix for their emotional pain. Right. And Mr. Tang, I mean, just now um, Anna was talking about how um, parents have a role because uh, um, I guess children, they look up to the parents and, and they sort of uh, do whatever the parents uh, do as well. Um, Mr. Tang, when, when you receive these uh, calls from parents for help, do you also talk to them about uh, their behavior when it comes to the Internet or, or video games? Many parents are calling us. Uh, uh, I agree with that. There are so many many conflicts uh, about this issue. There are many tension about this issue. Um, many cases they will argue with their parents or even uh, uh, um, calling police to to um, interrupt the uh, going into their family to their house to interrupt or to negotiate with them. Um, um, but for us, we have to let the parents know uh, what is the reason behind the, the interdiction or gaming disorder. Um, there is uh, always there are many negative impact, but we cannot find what is the cause or what is the consequence. Um, but we can see that there are usually there are four factors we have to tell uh, teach the parents. Uh, to understand why your children want concentrate on want to pay, uh, pay on a game. First of all is the uh, uh, low uh, self-esteem because usually they, they do not have good uh, or outstanding performance in school, academic, something like that. So they they will achieve in on, on a game. And second is the lower interpersonal relationship. They, they do not know how to engage with people or facing bullying in school. And third is uh, uh, do not have uh, leisurement or other activities. And finally, is the family relationship, poor family relationship. And when the teenagers um, do not want to talk with you, they 
while they facing some challenge or difficulty at school, they don't want to talk with you, discuss with parents, uh, father or mother. So they just escape into the internet and, and into gaming and do not seek for help. So you you cannot help them. And and you can see that, uh, I repeat these four factors. That means when the parents understand that, okay, that the reason behind the, the, the gaming is due to these four factors. They they understand more about the, their teenagers and they know how to help them instead of just um, control or taking away the internet, the, 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 the device. Right. Of the cases you come across, Mr. Tang, do they tend to be more boys than girls? <laughs> yes, usually boys uh, are usually boys, but nowadays uh, also girls. There are many cases for girls because nowadays the games are designed for uh, Girls, or even though um, uh, the the the, the uh, I mean the style of the gaming or the social media element is quite suitable for female too. Yeah, and so, Mr. Tang, before before you ask your question, Jenny, I, I just want to check with Mr. Tang. Earlier, you, you mentioned how um, some callers um, they they told you they actually called the police to their yeah. home to to ask them to yeah. help. Well, what kind of help um, do they want the police to offer? Usually, they, they have some conflict. So under such kind of tension that the parents do not know how to do, they just try to, to call police to try to settle or want to give some warning to their children to try to, to, to warn them to stop the online behavior. But it is not uh, long-lasting. It is not the long-lasting solution to this issue because they do not have settled the unmet need of the teenagers. Yeah, I suppose when, when a relationship gets to that point, when parents actually have to call the police to intervene, yeah. the, the relationship is, is more than just a little problematic. But Dr. Amos Chan, what I want to know is, is there a reason why teenage boys in particular are particularly susceptible to addiction to games? I guess there are multiple factors. Uh, some of them is because uh, traditionally uh, a lot of these uh, video games, uh, they are geared towards uh, uh, the male audience. They are more violent, they are more uh, uh, very, very stimulating, uh, fast-shifting uh, elements in the game that tries to call your attention and, and things like that. So the, usually these stuff... Uh, uh, the, it's more geared towards the, the male audience, and of course, a lot of boys would find it interesting uh, to begin with. Uh, but I guess uh, more than that is because, uh, well, males, boys, they aren't usually the the, the type that uh, they they are very accustomed to expressing their emotional needs. I guess what has been covered so far is that we know uh, actually that the, the gaming addiction, this behavior can also be seen as a symptom or a reflection of other more deeper level difficulties. Say, for example, there are stress at work, there are stress at school, there might be bullying, there might be low self-esteem, and in fact, there may be underlying anxiety disorders or depressive disorders. So it means that it becomes also a symptom of these more core issues. And without uh, dealing with these core issues, but only focus on this very specific behavior, actually, it only leads to a lot of conflicts, but not... 
uh, eventual resolution of the situation. Yeah, right. And uh, Dr. Chung, I know the um, government has a few advisory groups on health effects of uh, the use of internet and electronic screen products. And also they have recommendations for children, adolescents and parents and teachers on uh, the healthy use of the internet. What more do you think uh, needs to be done? My take would be, actually, we shouldn't actually just simply rely on the the children or the adolescents to be able to self-control. This exercise of self-control is very limited among children and adolescents. And uh, as you can see, that actually sometimes the parents, they are demonstrating a rather bad model for the, the, the children and the adolescents to copy. And in fact, sometimes if you go on the entire or other public transports, you will see that, well, the, the, the parents, they use these uh, mobile phones, these games as, uh, as a stopgap measure to, to pacify their children at the first place. So that they are, the, the children are already exposed to these games early on in their life, and now suddenly, you say that, well, uh, study and academic results takes precedence and now you have to, to stop. It's not easy. And, it, and once these expected behaviors takes form, uh, it's not easy to, to, to let it go. So I guess the first part is to avoid these habits from forming. The other thing is actually, if you really wanted to facilitate self-control, it needs parents, guidance and facilitation, but not scolding and criticisms. It's like we, the family, do it together as a group, but not I am monitoring you. Right. If we can't uh, rely on uh, self-control, do you think we need to go as uh, far as setting limits for um, under-18s on how long they can play video games, uh, for example, like on the mainland? Well, I would say that setting these strict rules actually is a reflection of ineffective parenting or inability of parents actually to enforce parenting. So if these rules were set, then it means that actually parents no longer are capable ones actually to enforce these rules and forcing the hands of the government to do that. And it will be really, really unfortunate. Yeah, so Anna Phantom, what do you think? We're having this discussion today because uh, in, in the mainland, they, you know, last year they, they capped the number of hours of, of teenagers um, on, on gaming to, to, you know, specific hours over the weekends and, and on holidays. And now they're saying more than 75% of them of the people under 18 are only spending no more than three hours a week. Do you think it's on the part of the um, gaming companies or the internet companies to impose these restrictions? They're businesses. They're there to make money. The history of this is that China and Korea have led the world in taking a view in the greatest social experiment of all time, which is allowing tech to rewire our brains unstopped. If you look back at the history of this in China, what they very intelligently did when they realized that the internet cafes were being taken over by teenage kids who were playing truant to the point that they were sitting there in adult diapers, adult nappies, all day long. And this is what you see. Kids won't even get up for 14 hours straight. And this was the case in China of a kid. I think it was one of the first cases that made the headlines. He was playing for 14 hours straight, wearing a diaper, and 
the internet cafe was providing food and drink for him. So he didn't go to school, he was just playing truant. And this is the patterns that we increasingly see. So, you know, it's serious. This has got to be taken seriously now. And limiting hours, I think, is just the beginning. Uh, a few hours a day is, is a lot for a young developing brain. Yeah, Remember, I mean, this weakens your psychological immune system. There's now no doubt about that. Mm-hmm. I mean, gaming is one thing. I mean, if you stop the games, they can still. I mean, in fact, this this study uh, also found that uh, well, they're not gaming, but they're spending their time watching TikTok or, or Douyin. You know, the mainline version. Well, this is it. You know, you're now hardwiring people, young people with malleable brains at the developmental stage, to be educated and molded by the internet companies. Is that what society wants? Yeah, and you mentioned earlier, uh, Anna, that that you know, in the developing brain, the the, the brain is forming these neural connections. Uh, when this happens to a teenager, what are the long term uh, implications for for that brain? Well, um, all things on the internet, particularly internet gaming, are amplifiers. So, can you say video games is a causation? Can you say video games cause addiction? No, you can't. But in vulnerable people, as, as your other guests have mentioned, in vulnerable people, the risk factors must be observed. So if they have weak coping skills, are vulnerable to stress, don't have good social skills, are, are being bullied or whatever, they are much more vulnerable to the amplification effects. And remember... All right, uh, Anna, I'm afraid we have to take a short break for the news. I have to stop you there. Thanks again for joining us this morning. That's uh, Anna Fenton, an addictions and relationship uh, therapist from OTNP. Also, many thanks to Dr. Amos Chung, a clinical psychologist. And Mr. Tang will continue our discussion in three minutes' time when we'll be joined by Juliana Pang, a Singapore-based addictions therapist. And uh, now here's the weather, cloudy with a few rain patches. Highs expected today of around 24 degrees. Winds moderate to fresh Easterlies occasionally strong offshore and on high ground. And uh, right now, the temperature reading at the observatory is 22 degrees, relative humidity 92%. Welcome back. This is Back Chat on a Thursday morning with Jenny Lam and me, Janice Wong. Today, we're talking about gaming addiction, whether the, um, and whether the age of COVID has made things worse and what more we can do to tackle this problem. Now, if you have any comments or questions for our guests today, you can email us at backchat at rthk.hk or give us a call at 233-88266. Still with us on the program is Joe Tang, who is in charge of the Hong Kong Christian Services Online Addiction Counseling Center. And joining us now is Juliana Pang, a Singapore-based addictions therapist. Good morning, Ms. Pang. Thanks for Good joining morning, us. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Good Thanks morning. for joining us on uh, the program. Um, now, before the news in the first half of the program, we uh, spoke to Mr. Tang about the number of calls for assistance his center has been getting for gaming addiction. Um, he said uh, uh, his callers are, are getting younger and uh, he receives around um, 10 calls per month. Now, Ms. Pang, what is the situation in Singapore? Are, are the age of uh, patients seeking help for gaming addiction also getting younger? Yes. Uh, uh, Ms. Pang, friend. maybe maybe Ms. Pang first, Mr. Tang. Sorry, sorry. Maybe let's uh, Ms. Pang uh, share her view, Ms. Pang. Definitely. Uh, thank you for actually having me on the show. Um, in Singapore, especially over the last year, even our Ministry of Education has noted uh, an increasing number of cases being referred to counselling um, in the schools for for gaming related issues. 
So we're definitely seeing an increase also at the clinic in terms of the number of cases where uh, parents have referred their children in for, for gaming-related uh, issues. I hesitate to use the word uh, addiction as the first off because I think parents now are a lot more aware and schools are a lot more aware of um, issues raised by gaming. So the good thing is that we're seeing clients being referred to us at a much earlier stage uh, of the gaming problem, which is a good thing. So you're, you're saying they're younger, that the clients are younger? Uh, we do see younger clients, uh, sometimes as, as young as uh, 10 years old being referred in. Uh, so usually primary four, primary five um, is, is, is in our Singapore system. It's, it's actually a, a transition stage for the children, and that can actually potentially also lead to um, gaming issues being related as they develop into a stage where they like to spend more time with peers. Right, and you just mentioned that uh, people are seeking help at an earlier stage. What does that um, actually mean? Uh, that means the parents, because they're much more aware of the issues raised by uh, compulsive or habitual gaming, uh, parents actually do refer the clients in uh, a little bit earlier in terms of age. Uh, schools are also a little bit more alert as to the potential risk of children actually gaming too much. So they will also be more um, alert as to uh, issues that might be related to gaming. So we do see them at an earlier stage of the issues. So, so in gaming, we put them on the spectrum. So everyone starts with social or recreational gaming. And then after a period of time, there may be development of dependency and they actually go into much more problematic uh, gaming behaviour. So being able to spot the signs of gaming issue earlier actually makes it better for treatment. So what's been done in Singapore to raise that awareness among parents and to spot those signs of addiction? So uh, my understanding is there's been a whole lot more um, articles actually published in the news. Um, as a clinic ourselves, we also uh, write more articles on it. And um, also in terms of the school, uh, counsellors are also um, being made more aware of um, gaming-related issues. And there are more programs now being set up um, to educate people about gaming and the potential problems around gaming. Right. And uh, the Singapore government it does have like an internet and gaming addiction intervention program. How useful has that been? Um, so, so for my side, I can't speak on behalf of the government, but definitely in terms of awareness, raising awareness and education around uh, building healthier gaming habits, that definitely has made a difference. All right. And Mr. Tang, um, uh, we just uh, heard from uh, Ms. Pang and she said uh, raising awareness is very important. Uh, what do you think can be done in Hong Kong to raise this kind of awareness? Uh, I agree that there is also in Hong Kong there is an increasing trend of uh, 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 cases from primary school students. Um, it's, it's a really um, a, uh, a significant increase of surveys uh, requests, uh, especially for 10 or 11 that, that means primary four, five, or six. And many parents are nowadays they are aware of this issue because uh, they can see the the the, the uh, their teenagers or their their, their, uh, their academic result or their performance or 
uh, and other uh, uh, social interaction, they, they know their situation uh, in school so that they will aware the, the problem and try to uh, ask them for service. Um, so besides that, I, I want to mention is uh, we have to let the, t let the parents know that they, besides control the timing or besides the training they are self-controlling, I think uh, they have to know that uh, what will the, the teenagers do when they stop playing on a game? That is the main issue. When they do not play on a game, what, what they do? What uh, Most of the, the parents will, will tell you that they Will they uh, studying or will they have other friends or will they have other activities? This is the main point. That means um, actually the reason is they have difficulties in their real life instead of just uh, on, the, the, on the gaming because they do not have other choice, the, the choice they want to choose in their real life. So um, we have to mention a lot to tell the, uh, to, to, to educated parents, no, this is the, the problem of gaming is due to the unmet of the teenagers in the real life. But it seems that both of you are saying that it's really up to the parents to control the kids. Now, uh, what do you think of um, what's being done in the mainland, that, that, that the authorities are limiting the time that teenagers can access the games? You know, they have facial recognition, and now, you know, most of the under-18s spend no more than three hours. Do you think it's it's a, a need for a government intervention or, or be on the part of the internet or the gaming company to help with this problem? Um, uh, it is a totally different situation between Hong Kong and the mainland. And I, I cannot tell what whatever this policy applied on Hong Kong is effective or not. But uh, due to uh, what I already mentioned, the main reason behind the uh, gaming or interaction is due to their unmet need, the dissatisfaction of unmet in their real life. So the most important is how to help the teenagers to equip their ability to, to fulfill their developmental need in their real life, handling the challenge in school, and help the family to rebuild the family function to support the teenagers. I think that is more, much more important. Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, if they're not addicted to games, maybe, you know, that it could be a drug that they could be addicted to. But if it's, a, if it's an illegal drug, I mean, should you know, the authorities would just say, OK, you, you cannot sell crack cocaine. That's just illegal. What do you think, Juliana Pang? Should, should there be some kind of intervention um, to, in uh, access to these games? Um, so they say it takes a village to raise a child. And I think um, when we tackle gaming as a problem, we can look at it on a systemic level. The question, though, is, you know, um, what role does each of the um, party in the system actually uh, play? So you're talking about the government, you're talking also about the responsibility of the gaming companies themselves, uh, responsibility of the parents and responsibility of the child. So I think it has to be a collaborative approach. Um, in, in my view, the government can play a huge part in terms of creating awareness, in terms of creating structures. Um, gaming companies themselves can have uh, much better ratings in terms of the types of games available to much younger children, uh, given that access to the internet and to video gaming is now uh, pretty much from a very young age. 
still having a, a more discerning tiers of gaming and range of access would be helpful as well. Parents, of course, play a huge part because, as Mr. Tang mentioned earlier, it's not just the gaming itself. It's what are the coping mechanisms you know, available to the child when gaming is removed from it? Do they have uh, healthy activities? Are they engaged with the family? Um, do they have other coping if they are actually using gaming as a form of stress relief? So everyone plays a role. And then schools themselves, if we look at um, the American system now, is actually looking at educating young persons about how to game healthily and in a constructive way. So if it is approached with gaming as an intentional activity rather than, you know, the seeking of that dopamine high... Uh, it might actually help the child learn to moderate their own behavior. Right. I think uh, a blanket ban um, will somehow create a secondary problems, such as you know teenagers uh, resorting to um, improper ways of actually circumventing the rules. Uh, it might also lead to the teenagers looking for other alternative and unhealthy coping. Right. Mr. Tang, uh, what do you think of uh, what Ms. Pang is saying? She said the government uh, can have a bigger role in uh, increasing awareness about the problem. And uh, I also have an email here from Shalini. She says, uh, why doesn't the Education Bureau do more to roll out school extracurricular activities to improve social interaction? Um, yeah. So what's your view, Mr. Tang? Um, I agree that uh, we, we have to do it together. And I, I could tell you the Department of Health in Hong Kong has done a lot of uh, work on this issue. Um, uh, they have they have issued uh, already issued a lot of uh, um, uh, uh, documents about this issue and also some education uh, materials to parents and teachers in school. So I think uh, we have to co-work together beside the public education provided by the Department of Health. Uh, we uh, in the social sectors. We provide direct service to, to assist the teenagers and the family to facing this challenge. And also, um, uh, the media, we, we can educate more to the, to the parents to know how to do it. And also the school system, just mentioned uh, as the email, um, the, the school system can also uh, uh, try to uh, balance the academic uh, and also other uh, activities or other ability development. How often do you come across cases in which an adult is addicted to games? You, you mean adult? Yes. Yeah. Uh, sorry, I don't have exactly uh, numbers, but we do have some cases for the adult. For example, um, when they finish uh, university uh, studying, they may not. Uh, find a job and stay at home and playing online games and uh, and stay a long of time and the, the parents will get worrying about this issue. On on some of them, even they have uh, take some job for uh, one or two months and they just uh, stay at home again. So they will keep this cycle for several years. For some of some cases, even twenty years, thirty years old. But the same reason behind is the same because they have difficulty in facing their 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 real life. All right, uh, yeah. Mr. Tang, we'll have to leave it here for now. Thanks again for joining us this morning. That's Joe Tang, who is in charge of the Hong Kong Christian Services Online Addiction Counseling Center. Many thanks also to Juliana Pang, a Singapore-based addictions therapist.
You're listening to Backchat. Call us on 233-88-266 and have your say. It's now 16 minutes past nine and it's time to move on to our next topic on the homeless situation in Hong Kong. The Audit Commission said in a report that the number of registered street sleepers increased by 2.6 times over the past decade, from 595 in 2013 to 1,564 this year. And those aged 50 or above even jumped 3.3 times in the same period. To tell us more about the situation, we're now joined on the line by Yong Ji Ning, the Head of Programs at Impact Hong Kong. Good morning, Ms. Young. Good morning. Thanks for joining us on the program. Now, um, first of all, uh, the Audit Commission says the number of registered, registered street sleepers has increased uh, 2.6 times over the past decade. What about the overall figure for the uh, homeless population? And do you have an idea how much uh, that has gone up by? I, I think no any charity or even no any individuals can really understand or really grasp the true figure of like homelessness. Uh, last year, we actually conduct um, uh, a Hong Kong-wise uh, homeless census uh, with other charity and also with professors in CHK. But actually, uh, what we find out, the figure is similar to um, uh, this uh, government report number. But also at the same time, we, we understand that there are too many uh, people experiencing homelessness. Actually, they are in a very like hidden places and far away that uh, our census team cannot be really uh, reaching them. So I think the like hidden homeless is another issue that make us really, really uh, be unable to grasp the true number. But um, what we experience in our outreach walk, uh, the kindness walk on the street, that uh, the the COVID situation is really like a a main factor to increase the the great number of uh, uh, homelessness in in this few years. Is is it because of joblessness? Why COVID? How has COVID contributed to this? Yeah, 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 yeah. It's the overall economic situation. So um, I think like for those who become homeless in the past few years would be mainly economically uh, homeless. That would be uh, caused by the poor economic situation and loss of job and then using up of their uh, um, saving. So that's why uh, we can see actually the, the wave of homeless or um, we don't have like the exact number, but what we observe the situation on the street is that every time they Maybe around like two months after a big wave of COVID coming, then more people will be on the street because uh, usually like they may have a small amount of uh, saving. And then when they lost their job, they use the saving to support their rent for one or two months more. And that's it. And then the, the result is that they have to be on the street. So, so do, you, do you see an increase among a certain sector of people? Are they mainly men who worked in a particular kind of job that who have lost their jobs and therefore became homeless? Um, because like our work is not only focusing on the newly homeless, but we are also working with people like experiencing homelessness for many years. And then like, uh, so there's not a very clear picture like uh uh, or we don't have this kind of statistics to divide them into different groups and to analyze their economic background. Um, but if we see homelessness as a, a complete issue, then like the long-term homeless actually is also mentioned in the audit report would be a more uh, concerning situation because people staying on the street for a longer time and also like uh, the repeating of homelessness is also 
uh, become higher, like the relapse rate is higher than before. And also, um, uh, for those who are experiencing homelessness for longer time, actually the, the background and the entire uh, story behind uh, and the whole issue of homelessness would become much more complicated. Right. Uh, Now in the um, audit report, uh, it said the Social Welfare Department uh, offered three NGOs uh, $30 million in grants last year to uh, provide support services for the homeless. But the groups, uh, which I know doesn't include uh, Impact Hong Kong, they only managed to reach uh, 27% of registered street sleepers. Um, What are some of the main difficulties in in locating them? Um, I think just like what I was saying, um, uh, they become more and more hidden. And then the uh, going back to the reason why they become more and more hidden, I believe like one of the main reason is the government's like a uh, expelling policy, because uh, the government has more and more like uh, clearance and like uh, clear up the street, clear up the park. They literally don't have really anywhere to stay in some like more visible area. And then what they can do is to find even more further away, uh, even like a more hidden, more invisible area so that they can stay maybe more stably. Can you give us an example? I mean, in the past, maybe you'll find them um, in the park, uh, uh, maybe uh, under a bridge. But uh, where, where are some of them hiding now? Um, it can be very like floating. For example, um, in this few years, we have some uh, 24 hours washing or laundry service uh, like company or shops. They may stay there for a few hours and then move to another place. So they don't really have a, um, a stable spot to stay. And maybe some of them just staying in a corner of like a, an old building. Um, some maybe even like more further in on the island, like on an uh, abandoned building, etc. So you were saying that you also work with people who are basically long-term homeless, right? Mm. When yeah. when you say longer term, how long are we talking about? Are we seeing an increase of long-term homelessness as well? Um, I think according to the statistics, uh, no matter from the uh, government report and also the census that we did last year, we can see that there's an increase in the uh, long-term homeless. And what we call long-term, actually there's like medium-term and long-term. Medium-term would be around like over two years to five years. And then long-term we define as like over five years. So are we seeing an increase in, in people who are basically homeless for two years upwards? Uh, yes, there's an increase, but I'm sorry that I couldn't find the figure right now. But uh, based on the two reports, uh, uh, the census that we did last year, uh, there is an increased uh, twen- uh, trend. So what do you think uh, the government can do to address this problem? Um yeah, I think this is the main uh, uh, discussion topic that we should talk about. Right? Um, so according to the audit report, we can see what are the funding service agreement with uh, the government and the support NGOs. But we can also see there actually all the numbers, all the figures, or the standards of the uh, agreement is more about the number of people that they can engage, the number of people that they can get employed or like uh, move to um, a temporary housing. But... Um, this is like really showing the philosophy or like concept. How do the government define homelessness? What are the cause 
of homelessness, it seems like from their perspective, is mainly economical reason. So just like get them a job, get them a place to stay, then the homeless situation would improve. But that's not how we actually uh, define the entire homelessness situation. We would like um, uh, attribute the cost to more on the health situation of this group of people and also their breakdown of social capital. So maybe like 90% of our client is really, really a majority. When they enter into our service, we find that they don't have even a significant others. Like they don't have an um, emergency contact person when they uh, enter our, into our service. That means like their like, um, social support network is kind of completely break down. And if we just get them a job or a temporary housing, it doesn't solve the situation to make um, the, the, the new life sustainable. Because like uh, a job and also a home can be very temporary. And next time when they uh, maybe face another uh, wave of uh, unemployment or just like have some conflict maybe with the uh, employer, then they will lose their job again. Then they are on the street again. So the um, uh, enhancement of their social capital to rebuild all these connections among them, to have like friendship, have a good rapport with them uh, or like their whole um, network is uh, one of the very important elements for the intervention. And the other hand, we also see a very severe health issue among this group of people, no matter is like chronic disease, like physical health or like diabetes or like injury or like disabilities. And then also uh, the mental health situation is very concerning. That's also like uh, based on the uh, census that we did yet, uh, uh, last year and also based on our own clientele. So, um, in, for example, in our own clientele, it would be like uh, more than, uh, I think it's only like 35% wrong, like uh, people that are completely physically and mentally uh, healthy. All um, right, uh, Ms. Young, we'll have to leave it here for now. Good luck uh, Good luck with your work. And uh, thanks again for joining us on the program. That's uh, Young Jining, the head of programs at Impact Hong Kong. And uh, now it's uh, coming up to, well, uh, it's coming up to 27 minutes past nine. And uh, it's time for our World Cup Roundup. Good morning, Atom. So um, Spain is now tops. Uh, Spain now tops the uh, Group F uh, after thrashing Costa Rica. But that's not the story of the day, is it? Yeah, yeah, that's really been overshadowed. So yes, uh, Spain uh, defeated Costa Rica seven nil. I expected Spain to win. I just didn't expect them to win by such a big margin. But the big story is Japan coming from behind to beat Germany, the four-time World Cup champions, Germany falling, blowing a lead in that game. Uh, I think uh, listeners should really check out that game-winning goal by Takuma Asano. He took the ball beautifully from a long ball and just ripped it into the top corner. So that's really worth watching. And I think if you're Germany now, if you're their coach, Hansi Fleck, he was brought in uh, for this World Cup, taking over from Jürgen Löw. And uh, he's got some questions to answer because this team is supposed to be better, supposed to be a mix of uh, young talents with veterans. But uh, Japan were fast and they deserve to win. And of course, uh, there's a match I know you want to talk about uh, between uh, Canada and Belgium. (laughs) Yes, I stayed up to watch this. Okay, so it finished 1-0 for Belgium. They won. They are the world number two team. I actually picked them to win the World Cup. As for Canada... 
This was their first World Cup appearance since 1986. They've never scored a goal in this tournament. They had a chance early in the game. Alfonso Davies was given a penalty, uh, a penalty kick, but uh, it was saved by the Belgian goalie Thibaut Courtois. And uh, you know, throughout the game, Canada had so many chances. 22 attempts on goal. I would never expect that from Canada against a world number two team. So they look really good. They had almost 50% of the ball against Belgium. So what comes next now? Uh, Canada plays Morocco on Sunday. Belgium, they top the group after winning this game. And they'll go up against Croatia on Sunday. Croatia and Morocco finish nil-nil. Belgium and Croatia are the big powers in this group. They're expected to advance, but neither side have really played up to their potential. Right. And can you tell us a bit of bit about uh, Canada's coach. I mean, everybody's talking about him. Yeah, John Hurtman is an interesting story. So he's an Englishman, uh, very well liked by the media, very well spoken. He was the coach of the women's team for several years before taking over the men's program. And after taking, one thing that I really like what he did with the men's program is he convinced a lot of players who are playing in Europe and other countries professionally to come back and play for the country. This was always a struggle for Canada convincing their top stars to play for the national program. And now he's got them. Kyle Lehrman, the substitute, star forward, plays his club football in, in Club Bruges. Tejan Buchanan plays in Belgium, now playing for Canada for the national team. So, yeah, props to John Hurtman for sure. Mm, wow. All right, Atom, unfortunately, we're out of time. Thanks again for your update this morning. And that's our RTHK sports correspondent, Atom Chung. Many thanks also to you who commented or emailed us today. And, of course, to our guest presenter, Jenny Lam, and Thank producer, you. Yuki. Now, here's the weather. Cloudy with a few rain patches. The top temperature will be around 24 degrees. Wind moderate to fresh easterlies, occasionally strong offshore and on high ground. Right now it's 22 degrees, relative humidity 92%. Scammers are everywhere. If an unknown caller claims to be a law enforcement officer, even if they have your personal information, you should never transfer money or disclose your bank account information, especially any passwords. Some online scammers may pretend to be lovers and investment experts. At the beginning of the investment, you might earn a little, but the scammers will eventually take all your money. When in doubt, call the police anti-scam helpline, 1-8-triple-two. It's 9.30, the news with Tom Warden. Thanks, Janice. All six LegCo by-election hopefuls who submitted nomination forms have been cleared to run in the race slated for the 18th of next.